0: Hi everybody and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. So we've been working our way through this section of Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion and we've been thinking about uh, his treatise on the life of the Christian man. This is uh, an attempt really to think in theological terms about uh, the approach that we all ought to take to seeking to grow in godliness and faithfulness throughout our lives as Christians. And you recall from the last couple of episodes... Uh, Calvin is not so much thinking about particular issues of godliness, particular sins that we should steer clear of and so on and so forth. What he's doing rather is taking a more broad theologically based approach to the topic as a whole. And what I'm wanting us to see, wanting to help you to see and uh, encourage you to reflect on is the way in which Calvin deploys deep and rich theological resources in the service of helping us to think differently about our approach to godliness in the Christian life. And so uh, last time we were looking at chapter seven, uh, which uh, is headed in the the translation that I've got here by uh, Ford Lewis Battles, uh, the denial of ourselves. Self-denial is the theme of this chapter. And you remember that self-denial does not mean the kind of trivial denying yourself chocolate during Lent or uh, denying yourself pleasures as though there is some value in worldly asceticism. The point rather is to deny yourself, not to deny yourself things, but to deny yourself, to deny ourselves, to think less of ourselves, to think of, us, of ourselves as less significant and of others as more significant and to act in a way that reflects that. Uh, so we had the first three sections was all we got through last time, and what I want to do in the, uh, the next few minutes as we continue working our way through this, um, uh, Calvin, in the remainder of this chapter, explores the, the outworking of this principle of self-denial, first in relationship to our uh, interaction with other people, and then secondly in our relationship with God. So sections four to seven uh, is this principle of self-denial, denying ourselves and affirming others in relation to our fellow men, Calvin says. So without further ado, I'm just going to jump through uh, jump straight in uh, and uh, I'll read a few sections to try and t- take you through the logic of it and make some comments on it as we do so. So here goes. We begin at the beginning of section four. When Scripture bids us to act toward men so as to esteem them above ourselves, that's a good way of thinking about self-denial. And in good faith to apply ourselves wholly to doing them good, it gives us commandments of which our mind is quite incapable unless our mind be previously emptied of its natural feeling. For such is the blindness with which we all rush into self-love that each one of us seems to himself to have just cause to be proud of himself and to despise all others in comparison what Calvin is going to start talking about here is the way in which we deceive ourselves. We, we can be thinking uh, at one level about uh, denying ourselves, about seeking to serve others and put others first, while at the same time we have this kind of innate blindness to our own selfishness and our own self-regard, which means as a consequence we can be really quite self-obsessed in many, many different ways all the time and not realise it. And Calvin wants to dig into that a little bit. For example, he continues, if God has conferred upon us anything of which we need not repent, relying upon it, we immediately lift up our minds and are not only puffed up, but almost burst with pride. Just think about what he's saying there. He's, he's highlighting the fact that by God's grace, we're not as bad, all of us, all the time, as we could by our own sinful lights be. By God's grace, we are sometimes preserved from the worst Uh, that we're capable of. And uh, sometimes God confers on us things of which we need not repent, but he confers those things on us. And the tendency deep within us is to be somewhat proud of the way that we are perhaps growing in uh, hospitality or growing uh, more faithful in the way that we uh, use our tongues and speak of other people. We can become proud of the very things which are simply reversals of things which we should be ashamed of and which are gifts from God uh, and we have no reason to be proud of them at all. The very vices that infest us, we take pains to hide from others while we flatter ourselves with the pretense that they are slight and insignificant and even sometimes embrace them as virtues. Now, that's something very, very um, uh, well worth thinking about there. It is very possible for us to recast even vices, even sins, as virtuous. And you know how this kind of thing works. In the the background to this, theologically speaking, is the fact that uh, every sinful action or every sin in general is the twisting of a good thing. Sin, in the most abstract and metaphysical sense, has no being in itself. It is a distortion of that which is good. As Augustine said, it's um, a privation of the good. Which means that you can uh, sometimes trace from uh, an ungodly tendency or sinful actions back to the thing that th- those actions are a distortion of. And then, if we're not careful, we can take the further step of crediting ourselves not with the sin, but with the virtue that we've distorted. So take, for example, we mentioned a moment ago how we use our tongues. or well, somebody who's just a little bit sharp, just a little bit quick to criticise, just a little bit sh- uh, unkind with their tongue can easily... Uh, recast that in terms where we depict ourselves as being incisive or courageous or standing against the wickedness of the culture around us, when in fact what we're just doing is mouthing off and being unpleasant to other people. You can see the danger here, and what Calvin is trying to do is to uncover the theological roots of really quite a common way in which we deceive ourselves in our blindness. We kid ourselves that uh, what is actually sin is righteousness, he continues, If others manifest the same endowments we admire in ourselves, or even superior ones, we spitefully belittle and revile these gifts in order to avoid yielding place to such persons. This is particularly a temptation, I think, in um, aspects of our lives which are very uh, central to us. Um, let me speak personally. Uh, it's very, very tempting for someone whose vocation involves preaching. Uh to find the faults in others preachers, other preachers' sermons rather than thanking God for the gifts that that person has been given, especially when, quite frankly, they're remarkably gifted and uh, a real blessing to many other people. It's very easy to find fault with people who, let's say in that instance, don't quite do things the way that we do it. But what applies to preachers, of course, applies to everybody else in different ways. You know, the things that are really significant, uh, constitutive parts of our lives in which we've been uh, studiously, by God's grace, seeking to do what is right. Maybe it's the way that we raise our kids or it's the way we approach our daily vocations, our work and so on. Even when we see in other people uh, ways of doing those things that are virtuous and good and godly, isn't it tempting to point out the errors, or at least to belittle them uh, by drawing uh, comparisons with things that cause others to appear unfavourable? If there are faults in others, Calvin continues, not content with noting them with severe and sharp reproach, which is probably... um, uh, too far already, we hatefully exaggerate them. Hence arises such insolence that each one of us, as if contempt, uh, exempt from the common lot, wishes to tower above the rest and loftily and savagely abuses every mortal man, or at least looks down upon him as an inferior. It might feel as though Calvin is somewhat overstating things here, but uh, and perhaps in one or two ways, he is, um, uh, if not overstating things, stating things in a very categorical way as as though, it, with the aim of making things appear very black and white. But it's intriguing that a little bit of thought, and you start to realize that even if Calvin is overstating things uh, because of things that he's seeing in the world around him that look really terrible, maybe our world isn't so different from his. And he goes on, for example, here. Uh, give some examples of this. The poor yield to the rich, the common folk to the nobles, the servants to their masters, the unlearned to the educated. But there is no one who does not cherish within himself some opinion of his own preeminence. You see what's happening here. Calvin is highlighting in a subtle way that the the social factors which ought to be insignificant in the way that we assess um, the relationships between people within the body of Christ... Poor and rich, servants and masters, and so on. Um, those uh, aspects of our relationships can start to leak uh, into the way that we think of ourselves. Um, I remember watching, um, watching, reading uh, uh, an autobiography uh, biography of um, Jonathan Edwards uh, a number of years ago by George Marsden, and one of the really fascinating documents that Marsden gets a hold of is the um, uh, the seating plan in the church uh, that. Uh, Edwards pastor, I think it was the church in Northampton. And uh, even uh, one as astute and wise and pastorally aware as Jonathan Edwards had drawn up this seating plan in which wealthy people had their own special pews, uh, specially reserved for themselves, separated from the common folk so they wouldn't have to hang out with ordinary people. It's kind of intriguing and somewhat disturbing that a great mind, even such as his, could make such a blunder as that. At least it seems to me that it's a blunder. And one wonders what we're capable of if someone like Jonathan Edwards is capable, capable of that. So what's the solution to this? Well, um, this is the point where I think um, uh, it, it just won't do to uh, caricature Calvin as um, uh, sort of uh, anticipating the Puritans a little bit in the wrong way and uh, issuing a bit of a beat-up that's not really warranted. What he's proposing here, I want us to take it really very seriously. I'll read it to you, then I'll explain why what's the solution to all this? Let us, he says, unremittingly examining our faults, call ourselves back to humility. Now, this is the the, the misunderstanding I want us to take care of. There is within later uh, reformational piety, especially in the the Puritan era after Calvin, there is a a tendency sometimes in some writers to be so big on self-examination, examining your faults, that it there's a tendency for that theological uh, uh, writing to crush people and make everyone feel permanently unworthy of being in the presence of God. And it's not that we are worthy of a relationship with Christ. It's that worthiness, you get to a certain point, and worthiness is not the right category to be thinking of. We're forgiven sinners. Of course we're sinners, but we're forgiven sinners. We're sons, male and female, of the living God, welcome in his family and so on. It's not that we should be constantly beating ourselves up about how terrible we are. But the flip side to that, in trying to make sure that we coordinate our relationships with each other appropriately, this is the point at which it is extremely helpful and salutary to unremittingly examine our faults, to recognise and to to try and make ourselves as self-consciously aware of our own sinful shortcomings as we are of everybody else's. Maybe that's the key. It is all too easy for us to spot the sins of others. We do it all the time. How much of the time is our conversation preoccupied with that? And yet, how much of the time is our conversation preoccupied with our own faults? Really? And that breeds uh, a fundamentally misguided... Oops, hitting this microphone. That's okay. A fundamentally misguided and misshapen set of attitudes to one another. Whereas if we are more consciously aware of our faults and shortcomings, then we'll be much more well able to hold consistently the right kind of attitude to each other. Okay, so that's section four. I'm going to move a little bit quicker through the next few sections, but it's fantastic stuff. I'll read a few um, extracts and so on uh, and then comment on them. So the next section, section five, Calvin is talking about um, uh, how this... Attitude of denying ourselves, self renunciation, the editors have labeled it in the, the section heading, leads to proper helpfulness towards our neighbours. It's not now so much just the attitude we have towards our brothers and sisters in Christ and to others, it's how we seek to help and to serve them. I need mean, to pick up. Um, initially, he quotes from 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5 Love is patient, kind, not jealous or boastful, and so on and so forth. Uh, then he says, This is the one thing required that we seek not what is our own. Still we shall do no little violence to nature which so inclines us to love of ourselves alone that it does not easily allow us to neglect ourselves and our possessions in order to look after another's good. Nay, to yield willingly what is ours by right and resign it to another. But scripture, to lead us by the hand to this, to this attitude that he's laying out, warns that, and this is a crucial comment I want to Just reflect on for a moment. Whatever benefits we obtain from the Lord have been entrusted to us on this condition that they be applied to the common good of the church. Now just think about that for a second. Whatever benefits we have received from the Lord have been given to us by the Lord on this condition and for this purpose that we apply them to everybody else's good. Here Calvin is talking about how self-denial, thinking less of ourselves, can create in us, the right attitude towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, our neighbours. And the way that it does it is by this fundamental recognition that what you have, what you are, has not been given to you. What I have, what I am, has not been given to me for my sake or for your sake. What it's been, everything that we have, ourselves, has been given to us so that we may share it with others. Now just think about how that works for a second. This introduces the uh, New Testament teaching, or Calvin here introduces a New Testament teaching about the body of Christ. And he places uh, ethical weight on the metaphysical description of our relationships with one another as parts of the body, members of the body. He continues in the next paragraph. Scripture, by comparing them to the powers with which the members of the human body are endowed, goes even further. That's to say he continues, no member has this power for himself, nor applies it to his own private use, but each pours it out to the fellow members. What he's doing is he's picking up the image of the church as a body with different parts, different members, and pressing home the critical observation that uh, what the hand is there for is not to serve the hand. What is your, your, The hand feeds the body, and the hand is the the tool through which the body works in various ways. And it does so for the benefit of the whole body, and there's something deeply intrinsic about that. That's what a hand is. It's not this is an option for the hand, and you could do it if you wanted, but most of the time it exists for itself. No, the hand exists for and as part of the whole body. It depends on the rest of the body, and it exists to serve the body. And so the capacities the hand has, right, the five fingers or four fingers and a thumb, and all the things that the hand can do, they're there, in all their detail and glory and wonder, so that the rest of the body may profit from them. So what has God put you in your church for? Just think about this for a second. God has put you in the church that you're a member of with a whole bunch of unique and distinctive capacities, gifts, abilities, powers, uh, benefits are the terms that Calvin uses. There's a whole bunch of things that you can do which either other people can't do at all or they wouldn't be able to do in quite the same way or in quite the same place or at quite the same time as you can. And those things are yours to give, yours to share, yours to exercise for the benefit of other people. What a different world we'd be living in if everybody applied themselves, if we all, all of us applied ourselves in this way, that I've been given all that I am, all my energy, all my time, for the benefit of other people. Now, clearly this then means that we need to coordinate uh, what Calvin's saying here, with other relationships we're in. Uh, I'm a husband and a father, and so I have obligations to my children and to my wife that I don't have to other people. And clearly there are times when I, you know, it's right that I'm with Nicole, my wife, or it's right that I'm spending time with my kids and I shouldn't be with other people. I don't want to be constantly distracted by phone calls and text messages uh, that I'm making um, uh, when I should be with my kids. But that's just the point, isn't it? Um, All of it is about other people, whether it's the particular priority I have towards spending time with my wife or spending time with the kids, or whether it's the other aspects of my life, my vocation, my calling, where all the time what I should be thinking is, how do I give myself to other people? Um, What am I doing here? It's my desk. I've been working today on some stuff and teaching in the next week or two. The way that I should be doing that is not in a kind of self-aggrandizing fashion or thinking, what would I most like to do? I should be thinking, how do I use this time at this moment to serve the other folks in the congregation here at All Saints? And everyone is in a different place. Um, Most likely, you've not got a vocation as a pastor if you're watching this, because most people don't, but you've got a vocation as something else. And the way in which we're to coordinate all the different things we do and allocate our time and approach uh, every moment of our lives is by thinking... To whom do I have an obligation at this point which I should be discharging? Or the gifts that I've got that I'm going to be using in the next 10 minutes. Who has God given me those gifts in order to serve? Is it my children? Is it my husband? Is it my wife? Is it my staff or my um, employer? Is it the client that I'm working for? What is it? And how then, by discharging those responsibilities in that way, am I serving the living God? So that's section five. There's a whole bunch of stuff in there, which is great. And that's the kind of way that it's oriented. Right. So now we move on to the next section, section six. And here here we encounter a really intriguing question because so far we have not considered um, the implications of the different kinds of people we might uh, encounter during our daily lives. Uh, We've just thought of other people. But what happens if you happen to run into folks who, frankly, they rub you up a bit the wrong way? You don't really enjoy their company very much. Uh, They're not really your kind of people. Uh, They're a little bit irritating. It's quite easy to enumerate their sins because they're so obvious. And it's not just that they're obvious to you. They're obvious to everybody. We're talking about difficult people, awkward people, uh, people with ingrained immaturities that drive other people up the wall and might drive you up the wall from time to time. And, And what do you do about that? In other words, how do we apply what Calvin has been saying about our self-denial and our affirmation of the significance of others and the the way in which we exist as part of a body with responsibilities to serve one another, how do we apply it to people who are, well, uh, to use Calvin's term, most unworthy? Well, let's just read a, a sentence or two and see what he has to say. The Lord commands all men without exception to do good, Hebrews 13, Yet the great part of them are most unworthy if they be judged by their own merit. So here's the problem he's introducing, you see. But here scripture helps us in the best way when it teaches that we are not to consider that men merit of themselves. In other words... Before you start thinking that that person and that lady and that gentleman and those kids are really unworthy because they're such a pain in the neck and everybody agrees and I don't really like them and neither does anybody else. Before you start thinking that they're unworthy, let's just recognise that everybody's unworthy if they be judged by their own merit. But what should we look upon? What should we think about people like that? We are, quote, to look upon the image of God in all men to which we owe all honour and love. That is a beautiful line. Just want us to reflect on that for a moment. We are not to think at all about what men merit in themselves. Enough of thinking about who's the easy person, who's the difficult person. Um, What does such and such a person deserve, Calvin's saying. What he's saying is, forget about them, forget about all that they are, You might be right that they are actually irritating, sinful, short-tempered, impatient, unpleasant to be with, but they're created by God in his image, and we are to look upon the image of God in that individual. The point is then that uh, this person may be a very immature human being, may be impatient and frankly, in human terms, undeserving, but we're all undeserving if judged by our own merit, and that's not the criteria Criterion that we ought to be using at all. We owe honour to the image of God. We owe love to the image of God. And that's how we are to focus our attention on and reflect on other people, especially those who are, quote, most unworthy, unquote. Calvin continues. Say, he is a stranger. Imagine that for a moment. Well, Calvin says, the Lord has given him a mark that ought to be familiar to you by virtue of the fact that he forbids you to despise your own flesh, Isaiah 58. Say, he is contemptible and worthless, but the Lord shows him to be one to whom he has deigned to give the beauty of his image. That contemptible and worthless individual, let's say that he is, is made in the image of God just like you are. And just like the delightful little old lady or the delightful elderly gentleman who is really easy to spend time with and really easy to serve, they're both and all made in the image of God. And if they're believers in your church, they're also remade in the image of Christ. He continues, Say that you owe nothing for any service of his. Say that like he's, he's never done anything for you. Well, what does, God, what does Calvin say? But God, as it were, has put him... In his own place, in order that you may recognise toward him the many and great benefits with which God has bound you to himself. God has put that undeserving man who's never done anything for you in his place, the Lord's place, because he's God's image, remember? So that just as we recognise that we owe God everything, we actually recognise we owe this man everything too. He's a member of the body of Christ. He's one to whom and for whom we should give and serve and live. Say that he does not deserve even the least effort for your sake, Calvin says. But the image of God which recommends him to you is worthy of your giving yourself and all your possessions. In other words, if you would give yourself and all your possessions to serve the image of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are to give yourself and all all that you have for one who bears the image of Christ. Now clearly what he's not saying is you wander down the street, empty your bank account into his, simply at his behest. But the point is an obvious one. The point is that what we owe to the living God, what we owe to Christ, is everything. And therefore it is that that is to be at the centre of our attention when we're asking ourselves what do we owe and how should we serve those who in themselves are, quote, most unworthy now, Calvin continues, if he has not only deserved no good at your hand, let's make it even worse, not, that he's, not just that he's um, not done anything nice for you, but, he continues, has also provoked you by unjust acts and curses, not even this is just reason why you should cease to embrace him in love and perform the duties of love on his behalf. Imagine if you have someone who actually despises you, And has acted in such a way so as to despise you, maybe for some considerable period of time. You will say you deserved something far different from me, yet what has the Lord deserved? You see, um, Calvin is forcing us to come face to face with the fact that if this man is a member of the body of Christ, we are to give to him what the Lord has deserved. Quote, while he bids you forgive this man for all sins he has committed against you, after all, how many times are you supposed to forgive your brother? Seven times, right? You know how that continues. He would truly have them charged against himself. The living Lord Jesus Christ wants that contemptible man's sins charged against himself. In fact, they have been charged against himself. That person that we spoke of earlier the contemptible one, the one who is most unworthy, the one who has done, deserved nothing good from you because all he's been is spiteful and impatient and unpleasant to you and everybody else. Well, Jesus died that those sins of his might be forgiven and now he calls you to do the same, both to forgive him and, so to speak, to die to yourself that he might enjoy your forgiveness. Assuredly, there is but one way in which to achieve what is not merely difficult but utterly against human nature, to love those who hate us, to repay their evil deeds with benefits, to return blessings for reproaches. It is that we remember not to consider men's evil intentions, but to look upon the image of God in them. That's the key, Calvin says. And that section, section six of chapter seven, is really, um, well, it's well worth um, extended reflection. Okay, we have two or three minutes left. I want to get to the end of section seven, just the next section, um, because that takes us to the end of this um, uh, sort of cluster of sections in the middle of this chapter. In section seven, Calvin points out, and this is again quoting from the section heading, the outward work of love is not sufficient, but it is intention that counts. Uh, Calvin is now dealing not just with what we do, but how we serve, the attitude that we have and the intention that we have as we do so. Let me read a couple of extracts. This mortification then, this putting sin to death, will take place in us only if we fulfil the duties of love. Now, he who merely performs all the duties of love does not fulfil them, even though he overlooks none. Remember 1 Corinthians 13 again? But he rather fulfils them who does this from a sincere feeling of love um, there has been a tendency in some uh, modern uh, evangelical circles to overlook external acts entirely uh, and focus simply on the heart or the mind or our feelings or our emotions and that's a mistake and therefore rightly um, others Uh, within uh, reformed or evangelical circles have pushed back against that and said, look, actually what you do matters in a lot of different contexts, whether it's in worship or our personal relationships or uh, the disciplines of life or how we pray and everything like that. It's not just intention and heart and feelings and desires that matter, but it is actually what we do. But we mustn't go flip back and make the opposite mistake. It's not just what we do externally that counts. It is the heart, the desire, the inward intentions, and Calvin addresses that in this uh, section. Um, Let me just read a couple of other representative um, uh, sentences just to give you a flavour of how he approaches this. Quote, They must put themselves in the place of him whom they see in need of their assistance. Thinking a couple of sections previously about uh, seeking to serve and help and use our gifts to uh, show kindness to others. We must put ourselves in the place of him whom they see in need of their assistance and pity his ill fortune as if they themselves experienced and bought it. This is empathy on steroids, isn't it? This is Christologically, metaphysically grounded empathy. We are one with this individual. We are one with that awkward or difficult man in the congregation that uh, you worship in. Uh, You are actually one with him and therefore we are to learn to think of ourselves as one with him. And the way to do that and the way to create within ourselves the Christ-inspired empathy is to look upon his afflictions as if they were your own. Just reflect on that for a moment, bearing in mind the most awkward person you know in your church. And consider the maybe the mess that he's made of his life. Or consider the the grief and bitterness that he brings upon himself by some of the attitudes that he has which are so ungodly and misplaced. Consider those things as though they were your dispositions and your ways of life in this sense that you act towards him then with pity, seeking to love him and to show love in the way in what and in how you relate to him to love him in a way which will draw him out of that ungodliness and immaturity furthermore Calvin continues we're close to the end now in giving these benefits he will not despise his needy brother or enslave him as one indebted to himself well there's a whole world to think about there isn't there how tempting it is to imagine somebody indebted to you and imagine somebody to be indebted to you pardon me because of some gesture of kindness we've shown to them. Um, this would be no more reasonable than we should chide a sick member that the rest of the body labours to revive, or consider it especially obligated to the remaining members because it has drawn more help than itself can repay. Again, he's back to the image of the members of the body. Imagine you sprained your ankle or something, and it's like, oh, man, that's going to really inconvenience the rest of the body. Uh, if you sprained your ankle, you can't go play soccer, you can't go play baseball. Um, You can't probably go for a walk for a few days. Uh, All of the rest of your body is inconvenienced. You can't do the things you'd like to do. So you're you're walking around on crutches or you're having to lie with your foot up on a uh, stool or something and the backache that you used to have starts coming back and the rest of your body starts to feel the pain of this ankle. Now, what you don't do is start blaming the ankle or insist that the ankle is indebted to the spine or the other leg because of the pain that it's caused to the rest of your body. And the reason you don't do that is because it's just nonsense. It's completely nonsensical to think in those ways because you're part of, your ankle is part of a single organism with the rest of your body. Well, that's how we are to think of the members of the body of Christ. It is with that kind of metaphysically grounded uh, set, w- set of ways of viewing our relationships that's how we will be, so to speak, inspired and enabled and exhorted by the scriptures to give ourselves in service to one another. One final sentence as we conclude. In this way, it will come about that he who is discharged one kind of task will not think himself free after he has given up something of his own um, and delegating to other men, other burdens, as having nothing at all to do with him. Rather, each man, which is a wonderful sentence here, each man will so consider with himself that in all his greatness he is a debtor to his neighbours, and that he ought in exercising kindness towards them to set no limit other than the end of his resources. That's an extraordinary thought, isn't it? We are to consider ourselves as permanently indebted to one another. Just like we're permanently indebted to Christ, the head of the body, we're permanently indebted to the members made in the image and renewed in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how far should we go in all those different relationships to seek to give ourselves to other people? Well, the end of your resources. You can stop when you've run out. That's a remarkable way of thinking about our relationships in the body of Christ, isn't it? And would likely transform them in significant ways. I think that's probably enough for us this evening. Uh, It's not even evening here, this afternoon. Um, uh, We will return and continue looking at this uh, chapter and then move on to the next chapter next time. But for now, the Lord bless you and see you soon. Bye for now. (coughs)